0: This is germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.
1: The modern banking system manufactures money out of nothing. The process is perhaps the most astounding piece of sleight of hand that was ever invented. Banking was conceived in iniquity and was born in sin. The bankers own the earth. And that was the president of the Bank of England in the 1920s.
0: Well, you know, there have always been questions about the way money is being used, going all the way back to Aristotle, uh, who condemned usury uh, because it was he, he did not see it as a good use of money, which is supposed to be a medium of exchange. But this idea of private central banks being able to just print up banknotes and loan them at interest uh, has drawn a lot of criticism. It's been around for about three, four hundred years. Uh, it's a little fuzzy. We know that some modern banking practices go back to the Knights Templar, things like the the traveler's check and so forth. But uh, there's been a long history of a fight between an honest money system and the private central banking model. And if you go back to the American Revolution, uh, our schools today teach us it's all about tea in Boston Harbor and Paul Revere, and, and what they leave out is that the Primary cause of the American Revolution was King George III's Currency Act, which basically ordered all the colonists to stop using their own locally generated currency and conduct all business with banknotes borrowed at interest from the Bank of England, which of course drove the country into poverty. Uh, there was never enough money to guarantee full employment. Ben Franklin wrote about this an awful lot in his uh, in his uh, writings uh, when he was the uh, uh, ambassador. To uh, Great Britain, uh, you know, got into some serious discussions about how destructive this practice of letting banks create currency out of thin air. And all it cost them was ink and paper and a printing press, but the, the people who borrowed that currency had to repay it in silver and gold. And it's a very simple mechanism. Most people don't see it, it's certainly not taught in our schools. But the overall effect is that the real wealth of a nation is transferred from the nation's workers and population and put into the hands of the bankers. And you wind up with people like the Rothschild family uh, who are basically multi-trillionaires that nobody wants them to know exactly how much money they've made. The Federal Reserve is refusing any kind of an audit because they don't want the American people to know just how much wealth they have sucked out of this country you know, with this scheme. It's one of the reasons why our government is now $33 trillion in debt. And the interest alone is a trillion dollars a year. Uh, The taxpayers can't even cover that. And so it's, it's going to have a very, very bad ending.
1: If we go back a few centuries, how were people moving money around?
0: Well, when this country was started, having just broken free of the Bank of England, they set up A very simple money policy. The government created the money out of silver and gold, and they could only create as much money as they had that silver and gold. And the legal definition of a dollar was so many grains of silver. Uh, And uh, obviously, lugging around large amounts of coins was a bit of a problem. So they did print up notes, but they were not the money. They were merely claim checks and printed on the front of them says you can take this to a bank and trade it for lawful money. The lawful money being the silver and gold coinage uh, issued by the United States of America. Well, having to only uh, put out as much money in loans as you actually have on hand uh, limited the banker's ability to generate a profit. And so we had... uh, efforts to basically uh, return the United States back to the Bank of England model uh, with the First Bank of the United States, which ran for 10 years and drove the country into poverty. Congress refused to uh, uh, renew the charter on the First Bank of the United States. That resulted in Britain uh, declaring the War of 1812 uh, to try and recolonize the country. And while the U.S. won the War of 1812, It did result in so much debt that the government uh, was forced to charter the second bank of the United States and once again uh, became uh, predators on the uh, working people until finally Andrew Jackson uh, campaigned for his second term in office uh, under the slogan Jackson and no bank. And he did succeed in getting the charter for the Second Bank of the United States revoked, whereupon, though almost immediately, there was an attempted assassination on him. Now, the Second Bank of the United States tried to operate as a normal depositor bank, but went bust after just five years. So then we had Lincoln and his greenbacks, John F. Kennedy and his United States Notes, and a big part of the story told in all wars or bankers wars are how presidents who stood up to the central bankers seem to meet very harmful if not deadly ends there are only a very few countries left that do not use the private central banking model and we seem to be constantly attacking them and anybody who tries to break free. Uh, Iraq wanted to break free from having to use the U.S. dollar. They went in and killed him. Gaddafi issued his own coinage, the Golden R, and uh, the African countries are saying, "Well, this is going to be better for us than having to use the dollar or the euro." And so Gaddafi got killed. And uh, you know, the, the bankers are a very powerful, very dangerous gang uh, that will do anything to continue uh, their power across the globe.
1: How did they become so powerful?
0: Well, uh, because they were creating money out of thin air, and they could just bribe politicians, and most politicians are easy to bribe, and uh, uh, not really thinking about their constituents. I mean, you get a rare Uh, like an Andrew Jackson or a John F. Kennedy who are realizing that the good of the country means going back to an honest money system. Uh, But they are definitely, you know, up against a very powerful foe. And I'll give you one instance. This is coming out of the John F. Kennedy assassination where originally they said, oh, crazed lone nut assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, and then years later, the Senate Select Committee on Assassinations uh, said, yeah, there had been multiple shooters and a conspiracy to kill President John F. Kennedy. Now, on the Warren Commission, one of the people who sat on the Warren Commission was John J. McCloy, president of the Chase Manhattan Bank and president of the World Bank. And he may be a great banker, but he's not qualified to investigate a murder, let alone the assassination of the president. So the implication is he was there to make sure that the link between Kennedy's assassination and Kennedy's issuance of the United States note remained hidden. I mean, there were a lot of players in the Kennedy assassination. Israel uh, hated Kennedy because he was trying to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, the mafia hated him because they felt he double-crossed him. Uh, by appointing Robert Kennedy as Attorney General and starting a war on organized crime. The CIA hated Kennedy for the Bay of Pigs. The Texas oil billionaires hated Kennedy for the oil depletion allowance. And the Pentagon in general hated Kennedy because he was going to pull out of the Vietnam War.
1: Most wars, if not all major wars or conflicts, have been initiated or exasperated by, by bankers.
0: Well, uh, it even goes back before the Federal Reserve. Like I said, uh, you know, the American Revolution was fought over the Bank of England. Uh, But the fact is that banks live on debt, and they use that debt to control people. And war is the richest harvest of debt for the bankers. And it is a tragically recurring cycle, and the way it operates is very simple. They set up the private central bank. They make money available to everybody, get them into debt. And uh, then when the people are in so much debt that they have to stop borrowing, then the bankers go to the politicians and say, well, you have to keep borrowing to keep our system going. And uh, the government does so without the permission of the people. But when the people and the government are both so deep in debt that they, they can't borrow anymore, that's when wars are initiated to basically force everybody to, to borrow more even if they, they really don't have the means to pay it back. And we seem to be at that stage right now. Like I said, the government is $33 trillion in debt with no real way to repay it. And yet they just go on borrowing and borrowing and borrowing uh, like there's no tomorrow. And fiscally, there may not be. I mean, the, the warning signs are very, very bad. And, of course, we have all these wars erupting all over the globe. Uh, the U.S. government, which has lost in Afghanistan, is losing in Ukraine, uh, is already talking about direct war with Russia, direct war with Iran, and direct war with China. Uh, this is going to end very, very badly, I think.
1: Well, end badly for who, though? Uh, not not, the, not the Everybody. bankers. Everybody.
0: Well, you know, banks and currencies do fail. I mean, if you look at the history of World War II, uh, the uh, indigenous banks in a lot of these uh, conquered countries uh, collapsed and the currency became absolutely worthless. And uh, the same thing could happen here. I mean, right now, uh, how do you assign a value to the US dollar when it's just a piece of paper or if it's a number in a computer? Uh, we certainly don't have the gold and silver to back it all up like we promised we were going to do at Bretton Woods. You know, but Nixon shut that down. And now we're being told that that piece of paper is the money. And of course it isn't. It's just ink and paper. It's got no intrinsic value whatsoever. And uh, the more they print up the, the currency uh the more we have inflation because we've got too much currency chasing around too few goods and services prices are going up in a way it's kind of an invisible hidden tax on ordinary people when government's massive spending uh, is driving these prices through the roof you've got the book on the shelf there the creature from jekyll island which was actually the second time that they held a conference on jekyll island uh the first one Uh, It was a few years before, and it failed miserably. Um, But uh, the the bankers had funded Woodrow Wilson's uh, political campaign for the White House, along with a huge number of congressmen. And so when the Federal Reserve uh, Resolution came through, uh, they voted it through. Uh, Woodrow Wilson signed it. Uh, Years later in his memoirs, he basically said he regretted that decision. Uh, because of the harm it was causing to the country.
1: And then almost immediately after that, World War I. Uh,
0: yeah, uh, yes. As a matter of fact, almost immediately World War One, And, you know, the country was already in a financial problem. There had been a crash in 1907. And again, there's another repeating pattern, that every time the government and the bankers uh, get the economy totally messed up, They get into a major war to try and distract from it or to recover from it. Crash of 1907, World War I, crash of 1929, World War II, crash of 2008. And here we are, you know, rattling the nukes at each other. Private central banks do not exist to serve the public. Mm. Um, And uh, it's not like the Federal Reserve was a brand new idea in fact originally they were going to try and call it the third bank of the united states uh but there was certainly a backlash against that name by those who remembered what happened with the first and second banks so they called it the federal reserve to sort of make it sound like it was part of the government uh but it isn't it's a privately owned you know entity it's no more federal than federal express
1: so how exactly then do they get behind wars
0: Well, they'll um, basically, uh, you know, support candidates who are pro-war. They will fund uh, arms development. In fact, there was an interesting movie that came out some years ago called The International, and it was all about a uh, banking cartel uh, that had gotten into the weapons trade and it was being investigated, and the investigator said, so this is just another way for them to make money by selling guns, and the insider says, no, 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 you don't understand. If you control the conflict, you control the debt the conflict creates, because, Mm. you know, that's the founding principle of all banking, is to enslave us, whether we are people or governments, enslave us to debt.
1: When wars break out, there's no real evidence that the banking cartels have have taken a knock they have always benefited
0: oh yes oh yes well again you know before global banking uh the banks in the countries that lost the war definitely took a hit but somehow they managed to rebound and uh, you know business goes on so is there
1: a relationship between uh the creation of the federal reserve world war one and then the great depression
0: uh, the uh, Great Depression was the result of uh, bad fiscal management. and I, I, I think they wanted the depression uh, to basically lower the value of real assets because everybody had worked to build homes and farms and factories. And when the depression hit, the valuation on all of those assets went, you know way, way, way down at which point the bankers could either step in and foreclose on the properties or just buy them for pennies on the dollars. And that too is a repeating cycle. Let the population build up the assets, then find some way to return the assets to the banks, and then the banks can resell those assets to the next generation. And it goes on and on and on. Basically, uh, uh, the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One first of all, dumped all the war debt onto Germany and imposed on them a private central bank. They didn't want it, but they'd lost the war. When the Nazis came to power, the first thing they did was shut down the private central bank and issue a new value-based currency. It was denominated in a unit of work, and it was an amazing success. Uh, It was called the German Miracle. Uh, Adolf Hitler got uh, Time magazine's Man of the Year for this amazing change. But the bankers were absolutely terrified because people around the world were looking at the German economy and saying, why aren't we doing that here? And, of course, that's why Hitler got targeted and, uh, you know, was basically backed into a corner at the point where, you know, war was the inevitable result.
1: So the bankers had every intention to take him down.
0: Oh yeah, they did not like him at all. Uh, they didn't. They don't like any leader anywhere uh, that proposes an alternate banking system to the one they've got now. Uh, was I think the one of the Rothschilds said, uh, "Give me issuance and control of the nation's currency, and I care not who makes the laws."
1: It almost feels though that there's no point in having the conversation. I mean, is there a way out?
0: <laughs> well. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, you know, the founding fathers back in 1776 found a good solution. They just weren't able to hang on to it. Which was what? Uh, They basically fought the revolution to break free from the Bank of England. They set up an honest monetary system. Um, But the uh, European banks came back on in and said, no, we can't let this go on because... uh, you know, the, the governments, if they follow the same model, will be without debt. They'll make their own money. They'll break free from our control. In fact, when uh, Abraham Lincoln came up with his greenbacks, the European press excoriated him, saying that this, this pernicious system of government-created money uh, would destroy every monarchy on earth. And that's why so much of Europe backed to the Confederacy. And if it hadn't been for uh, russia they, they probably would have directly invaded the scam is you know we're going to loan you the money to fight all this war and when the war is over we're going to loan you more money to rebuild after the war so that you wind up with more or less what you had before it all started except that the bankers are that much richer these banks do work with the government to a degree uh, to try and basically keep the economy stable and moving along, not working too well here in the United States. But um, uh, they do maintain their independence. As I mentioned before, the Federal Reserve is refusing any kind of an audit um, and say, uh, you know, <clears throat> it's none of your business. In fact, there was an attempt to file a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit against the Federal Reserve, which they defeated by going into court and saying, hey, we're a private company. We're not really part of the government, and so the Freedom of Information Act does not apply to us. Now, do you remember when the, the former Soviet Union collapsed and everybody's all of a sudden buddy-buddy and you know uh, we're, we're good friends with Russia? And that lasted until Vladimir Putin uh, took control of russia's private central bank now the owners of that bank still own it but putin and his uh, his uh, administration started running that bank for the benefit of the russian people and that's the day when all of a sudden oh putin bad putin bad we've got to go in and do something about him so yeah it, it, this um money power if you will uh is definitely uh It's causing a lot of trouble. And again, Abraham Lincoln warned us about it, saying, you know, the money power will continue to grow uh, until the republic is destroyed. In Putin's case, it's a question of how much interest is being charged, where the money is being loaned to, and uh, again, running it for the benefit of the country rather than for the benefit of the bank's owners. And... uh, you know the 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 allure of this kind of banking for not just the bankers but for the government is the ability to create currency out of thin air and not be limited by the physical commodities on which monetary systems are based whether it's silver gold salt special white seashells uh, you know a lot of these things have been used for commodity base uh there was a theory floated a few years ago about basing a new currency on a kilowatt hour uh which would not only give us a stable currency, but encourage more efficient storage and transmission of electricity and and generating capacity. And it would have been nice if it had worked because now that we're going into this electric vehicle revolution, we're realizing we don't have the generators to, to charge all these cars. What
1: role then could something like Bitcoin play?
0: Well, I'm not really that conversant on Bitcoin. Uh, It feels like it's another fiat currency to me, uh, but I'm going to basically say I'm not an expert on it. It's attractive because it operates outside the control of the conventional traditional bankers and the government. And right now, that's very attractive to a lot of people, especially with all this talk about a cashless society.
1: Is using cash a threat to the central bankers?
0: Well, it's not really a threat, uh, but what the banks and the government want to do uh, is have control of all of your wealth uh, in their hands, uh, taking away your freedom to say, stop on the way home and buy a jelly donut. Uh, but it's also used, uh, going to be used as a tool to surveil you and monitor you. They're going to know every single thing that you buy. And the next step after that is a social credit system like they have already in China. And uh, it's basically a dystopian system in which if your social credit score is damaged, like you say something the government doesn't like, they shut off access to your own money Mm. and you don't get to buy groceries that day.
1: Okay, going back to my timeline, what uh, role did the bankers play in the Cold War?
0: Well, uh, the bankers were uh, basically loaning money to the defense contractors and then being repaid out of tax funds. You know, uh, you keep hearing this phrase, war is good for business as long as you're in the business of war. And it was kind of funny about a week ago to hear – Uh, uh, some of the spokespeople in Washington saying, well, all this money that we sent to Afghanistan and all this money that we sent to Ukraine is actually good for our economy because it comes back here and pays for jobs. And that's really not an accurate argument because when you invest money in businesses in this country, you make things that people want to buy as opposed to if you, you are making bombs and stuff they explode that money invested in them is completely gone at that point and um but yeah it, you know eisenhower warned us in his farewell address about the military industrial complex we're seeing it at work right now we're seeing other complexes have emerged like the medical industrial complex which is pushing vaccines uh, the, the, the media industrial complex, uh, and it's it's just, there are all these structures that are uh, vying for power and control and influence and wealth. And ordinary people just get caught in the way.
1: If I look around, there are a lot of very, very wealthy people and stuff seems to be innovated and invented and manufactured and everything does seem to work. Is, is that... Am I seeing only a, 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 a small portion of what could have been?
0: Well, I think what you're seeing is a system that is being managed fairly well, because uh, the way it works, the economic period works, is people at the bottom work, they buy products, the money floats up to the top, and then a mechanism, usually taxation, siphons off that extra wealth from the top and recycles it back down to the bottom. When that cycle breaks, as it has here in the United States of America, then you get massive homelessness, joblessness, uh, and then when you pour millions of illegal immigrants onto the system as well, um, it's going to break down. Uh, There's no way to keep sustaining it.
1: You spoke about the 33 trillion US dollars and I remember a few years ago, it was a 25, and a few years before that, it was a 21. Now, at what point will it actually break? Uh, it just seems to be getting higher and higher.
0: Well, I'm old enough to remember when the national debt was just $6 trillion. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, but yeah. The phrase the debt ceiling was always a political instrument to try and reassure the American people that government spending was under some form of control. But of course, every time the debt hit the debt ceiling, they'd push it up and push it up and push it up and, you know, higher, higher. It's like a cheerleader out there saying, go for all that you can get. Um, you know, we've reached the point where the debt, just the interest on the debt is unsustainable. and um, uh, again, we see our government talking about war with Iran, China, and Russia uh, as a distraction from what is going to be a horrendous financial crash. If
1: the United States goes to war with China, for example, they keep pushing for this, and we know that they want to go to war with, with Iran, what, what would it mean for, say, the Fed? Would the Fed actually benefit from this, or would it be a, a, like just a, a death nail in, in the coffin?
0: Well, it all depends on who wins and who loses the war. Uh, But I think the Federal Reserve would, uh, you know, make out like a bandit because they're the primary lender for all this military spending. And somewhere down the road, it all gets paid back with interest by the American people. We would have another Great Depression, probably uh, worse than the uh, previous one. And, uh, you know, everybody would be pointing fingers and scrambling around and trying to figure how do we restart it. And some people would probably go back to Franklin Roosevelt and, uh, you know, his uh, New Deal policies. Uh, But that, uh, uh, again, led us into uh, uh, being primed for a new war. Do you believe that the
1: bankers were uh, benefiting also from uh, acts of terrorism, such as 9-11?
0: Well, we know that Larry Silverstein certainly benefited because, uh, you know, he cleaned up on the insurance policies on those buildings. And uh, uh, there was an interesting situation where some of the computers for a major credit card company uh, were inside one of the towers. And just before they came down, there was a massive transfer electronically of funds that left the tower. And we don't know where it went because when the tower came down, the computers were destroyed and nobody knew where the money had gone to. Now, interestingly enough, the hard drives from those computers were sent to a company in Europe that specializes in recovering data from damaged hard drives. But that company was then quietly acquired and the hard drives were put up on a shelf or possibly destroyed at this point. So somebody somewhere did make a lot of money off of 9-11. I'm just wondering, is,
1: is there a way to push back?
0: Well, um, it unfortunately would involve a great deal of violence, of which I am not a huge fan.
1: So, a revolution is, what, is, is the only way out?
0: Well, you know, in this rush to create a global government, uh, it appears to me that the political climate has been created leading to a global revolution and like uh, we're seeing all these protests against israel literally around the world we're talking millions and millions of people i i think the world population has really gotten close to the breaking point
1: if for example some sort of parallel banking structure could be implemented is that feasible
0: it's feasible uh, that's what Qaddafi tried to do in Libya, but of course it comes under attack immediately. You know, uh, Libya is invaded. Qaddafi is killed. Uh, his gold dinar is taken off the market, and they put a new mm. private central bank in there.
1: Every single time. <laughs> yeah. Um, who Who are some of the the players, the the big players behind behind the central banks?
0: Well, you've got well the you know owners of the Federal Reserve. You've got the. Um, um, uh, main Clearance Bank of uh, uh, the the central bank of all central banks, um, the Rothschild family, the Warburg family, the Rockefellers. Uh, there, there's a lot of people who are part of that little club.
1: Um, you said the, the the Bank of Banks. Are you talking about the BIS?
0: Yes, the Bank of International Settlements. Thank you.
1: Are they are they uh, heavily influential?
0: Oh, yeah, very much. Uh, uh, They do uh, tend to set policy for the rest of the world's banks and like the Federal Reserve. And of course, the Federal Reserve has 12 member banks uh, that they control. So it kind of trickles down.
1: Are governments of the world, therefore, vassals of central bankers?
0: It would appear to be so. Uh, And again, as I pointed out in my article, uh, those world leaders who stand up to the private central bankers, bad things happen to them. You know, Russia still has a private central bank, it's just under complete government control. Um, I think there's really only about three countries left that don't have this style of central banking. Iran is one of them, which is why they're always talking about invading there. And uh, as far as China is concerned, their banking system Uh, is more under government control, but you know, they're going through some serious economic hardships with the housing market. What we need is more education. You're not going to learn about the banking systems in the public school system. I mean, especially today, it's all LGBTQ and critical race theory and Mm. you know, the joys of chopping bits off your body. And uh, like I said, prior to 1913 when you went to school, you were taught about King George's Currency Act and, and the rest of it. As soon as the Federal Reserve Act was passed, public schools stopped mentioning that out of concern that the smart kids would stand up and say, "Wait a minute, we're back in that same dumb system all over again." And so that's when the story was reframed as uh, you know the Boston Tea Party and Paul Revere's ride and and uh, all the other stuff. But that's all window dressing for what was really going on.
1: Public schooling is just indoctrination camps.
0: Yes. And they have been pretty much all along. I remember when I was in uh, uh, elementary school, and yes, we were being taught reading and writing and gun safety, amazingly enough. uh, But we were also getting indoctrination about those commies, you know, they're they're coming for you. You've got to hate the communists. And and, uh, it got a little over the top sometimes. And now we have commies right here in the United States of America. How did that happen? Well, uh, communism, is a very attractive idea uh, to people who just want to be given stuff and not have to do much for it. And so the sales brochure for Marxism uh, uh, basically plays up to that interest, you know, from those according to their abilities to those according to their needs. And uh, it looks really attractive, but of course, as we've seen in history many times, including the Soviet Union, Socialism or communism fails when you run out of other people's money
1: you were talking earlier about uh, the um, the monetary system before the introduction of the Fed now if if we were to go back to something like that uh, how do you think it would work
0: the same way it worked at the very beginning the government has a certain amount of gold and silver in uh, fort Knox and we don't actually know how much is left in there and uh, <clears throat> It issues it as direct coinage or it issues banknotes that are uh, directly redeemable for that gold and silver. What really set the stage for the economic problems we're dealing with right now uh, was the Bretton Woods conference at the end of World War II where all the world's economic powers got together And uh, they made some changes. The British pound sterling lost its status as the global currency. It was part of the deal that Roosevelt extracted from Winston Churchill to get into the war. And um, they basically said, we're going to tie the Federal Reserve note to gold at $35 an ounce. And we promise we will not overprint the Federal Reserve notes to exceed the amount of gold we have to redeem it. And then almost... Immediately, the Federal Reserve broke that promise and started overprinting uh, these paper notes. And these other countries were forced to accept them uh, in exchange for real products and real uh, services until finally during the Nixon administration, France was looking at all these paper notes piled up in the vaults uh, for which uh, they had sent real things like French wine and so forth to the United States And they notified the U.S. government that they were going to redeem these paper notes at the agreed-upon price of $35 per ounce. Well, Nixon took a look in the gold vaults and realized they had nowhere near enough gold to cover those paper notes. And he ended gold convertibility. It was called the Nixon shock. And it caused a lot of damage around the world. It caused a lot of upheaval for the U.S. dollar. And the way they got out of that mess is they went... uh, to uh, the oil producing nations in the Middle East and said, we will guarantee your military safety from you know who if you only accept dollars for your oil. So they propped up the value of the dollar on oil. It was called the petrodollar. And uh, that's what kept up international demand for dollars. But with uh, Israel basically showing that it can and will continue to aggress its Middle East neighbors, The petrodollar nations are saying this isn't working. The U.S. can't keep its promise. And you have more and more nations turning away from using the dollar. Uh, You have the uh, growing uh, uh, Shanghai Cooperative Organization that is doing trade in their own indigenous currencies. You have the BRICS nations that are starting to do the same. Uh, And that's another downforce on the U.S. economy.
1: But with the rise of those... um countries that are taking a stand against the petrodollar, for example, this, the, the central bankers still win.
0: Well, yeah, the bankers in those countries are always going to win. The game is definitely rigged. Um, but here in the United States of America, uh, again, we, the ordinary people, are going to suffer. Uh, when things get tough, the bankers are simply going to move their wealth to someplace else that's safer. And we're already starting to see a lot of that. Now, a lot of wealth used to be stored in the U.S. for reasons of safety. And uh, that goes back to uh, George Bush's presidency, where they basically created a system saying that if you have your money stored in the United States, if it's invested here, um, we will always guarantee the losses. If you make money, you get to keep it. If you lose money, the taxpayers will cover it which is actually kind of a fascistic form of uh, uh, economy. Uh, But now these other countries are saying maybe the U.S. can't cover our losses and it's time to relocate where we're storing our wealth. I'm not the only one saying that there are serious warning signs that the economy is becoming unstable. And whether a new world war will get us out of that uh, or not, I'm not sure because, frankly, I don't think we can win a war against Russia and China at the same time, especially given our abysmal performance in Afghanistan and Ukraine.
1: Okay, so what role then have U.S. presidents in recent years played? For example, Trump, Biden, Obama, Bush, Clinton even.
0: Well, uh, They seem to just be going along. I mean, as far as I can tell, uh, the last president to really try and stand up to the Federal Reserve was John F. Kennedy. He was assassinated, and uh, again, for a wide variety of reasons. Wars and assassinations never happen for just one reason. It's often sold that way in the media. But usually you'll have a group of people who have overlapping interests, and that area where they overlap is where they say, oh, this person needs to be gotten rid of, or we need to start a war with these people. Trump's biggest mistake in his first term is he wanted to be generous and magnanimous in victory, and he went into the White House and said, all you people, you can keep your jobs, no problem, figuring they would be loyal to him because he's the new boss. It may work that way in business not in politics. Everybody has secret allegiances. Everybody has compromising connections. And everything that Donald Trump tried to do from day one was being blocked by bureaucratic resistance Mm. and what we would call today the deep state. And I'm hoping that if by some miracle Trump is able to regain the White House next year, uh, that he's going to basically take the lessons he learned in his first term and say, "Okay, scrape out. The administrative staff bring in new people from outside the beltway and let's get to work on trying to fix the country.
1: Trump didn't start any new wars, right?
0: No, he did get tricked into bombing Syria, but we were already at war with them.
1: Mm, mm, mm. So in essence, he was still being played by the bankers.
0: Well, he was being played by a lot of people and not just the bankers. He was being played even by members of his own political party. Um, You know, especially the neocons who never met a war they didn't like. Um, So, yeah, and uh, again, under our system of government, there are limits to what the president can do unilaterally. And uh, so it it did sound good. And yeah, when Trump beat Hillary Clinton, I was absolutely overjoyed and uh, uh, was hoping for some really good things to happen. And uh, again, everything Trump tried to do was being blocked and stalled uh, by by the swamp. Uh, his border wall, you know, he tried to build it. That was being blocked at every turn. And uh, now, of course, it's been torn down and we're just being flooded with mm-hmm. uh, millions and millions of illegal immigrants. And now the Democrats are trying to say, well, we've got to let them vote. They have every right to vote because they're here in the United States. No, they're illegal immigrants. They do not have a right to vote. and you know the democrats are basically hoping a bread and circuses approach uh, is going to win the next year's election you know vote for us we'll give you free stuff we'll give you reparations we'll give you free whatever and uh, uh, again the parallels between our current situation and the last days of rome uh, are getting more and more obvious each day in what way well, again, the uh, pandering to the population by the government, uh, you know, with uh, uh, d- displays, entertainments, free handouts, uh, uh, very obvious uh, intent to uh, make the entire population so dependent on the government that they won't stand up and say things have got to change.
1: Mm. So if, you, if you're standing in a tunnel, uh, Michael, yes. and, and, and you see a light at the end of it, is that, in your opinion, a train coming towards you?
0: Uh, It does feel like that. And uh, actually, the analogy I like to use is many, many years ago, uh, I was down in Australia, and somebody down there had bought the replica of the bounty used in the Mel Gibson version of that story. And I love that. I'm a rag setter from way back. My wife and I were married on a sailboat. And I remember standing on the dock, watching it come on in, and I could see it was going to ram the dock. And it was just coming and coming and coming, and nobody could do anything. Uh, and it did hit the dock and tore off the jumper strut. It was a very loud noise. It does feel like that. We've, so many people seem to be able to see what's coming, whether it's the economic downturn uh, or more of these wars, and it, it, is nothing, it doesn't seem like we can do anything about it. We still, have, unfortunately, have a large segment of our population, which is totally in denial about what's going on. They, they just don't want to deal with it. You know, the bankers, they loan money to anybody, and as long as they're getting their money back, they're going to encourage that situation. Uh, we know now, in hindsight, those COVID vaccines were ineffective and in many cases actually dangerous, but they kept pushing them and pushing them and pushing them because the, pharma- the bankers had loaned the pharmaceutical companies lots of money to develop these uh, products, and the bankers need the pharmaceutical companies to be able to sell these products in order for the loans to be repaid.
1: Again, as as I've mentioned a few times, here on the African continent, one of the uh, issues that we face is we are all failed states. And um, and so we have the situation of the sort of debt trap slavery.
0: I mean, that's what they're always going to do. When, when Oh, we're going to refinance your school loans and your payments will go down, you know, Uh, every month here, it'll just be paying for a lot more months and in the uh, long run you will pay much more in interest. And uh, yeah, it's always about maximizing profits. And uh, there have been several scandals in which uh, the US government was using the banking system as tools for foreign policy. Uh, They would uh, encourage the banks to uh, loan money to countries in South America with the promise they would be repaid out of a certain crop. Then the uh, CIA would go on in and introduce pests and diseases to destroy those crops thereby rendering that country permanently in debt and under the control of the United States. And uh, that's why you have so many countries in South America that do mm. not like us. So it would appear that
1: on a large scale, it's very difficult to, to defeat the system, but perhaps on an, on an individual, very local scale, um, for example, if we use cash.
0: Banks, in order to pay the interest on their actual deposits, have to loan out money to generate income and people, uh, at least in this country, uh, they're not borrowing. Claire and I've you know, basically stopped using our credit cards and uh, we're seeing the American banks get into trouble. We've had five banks collapse this year uh, because they owe more in interest to their depositors than they're able to get from their borrowers. And uh, you know, the government keeps coming in with a bailout, which I define as taking a uh, billion dollars from the American people and giving it to the bank so the bank can loan it back to the American people at interest. And uh, that's one of the signs that our system is under severe strain. And at the same time, you know, you've got this illegal immigration, which is driving up housing prices because there's a housing shortage. Uh, and it's all, I know a lot of people are starting to think this is intentional. You know, Mm. that they're trying to basically tear down the United States to make way for their Marxist paradise or the New World Order or the global government or whatever they're going to call it. In the case of George Orwell's 1984, he actually wrote it as a warning. Instead, it's being used as an instruction manual. And um, I mean, they've actually started taking that out of school libraries. They don't want people reading that. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) I remember when I graduated college, I was getting all these offers for credit cards and credit cards and, you know, it was obvious they were trying to get me on the, the debt hook as early as possible. And now it's institutionalized with the this, this student loan program, you know, just jab them on that barbed hook and never let them off.
1: Okay. How can I follow your work?
0: Well, I have a website called whatreallyhappened.com, and that is where I'm focusing my efforts right now. Um, I had to step down from my radio show uh, because of uh, age and health issues. And uh, I may go back to a one day a week show. I still haven't decided on that. But mostly, uh, I, I'm just trying to educate people and t- b- tell them that, you know, World War Three is a really bad idea.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.